everybody. Good to see all of you today. Looks like we got a lot of people out sick again. Boy, it's been a rough, rough flu season, hasn't it? Uh, I just encourage everybody to be praying for your brothers and sisters because, uh, well, and pray for yourself that you would avoid it too. That would be great so that uh, uh, it doesn't proliferate. Uh, we got a word from somebody this morning. Yeah, our entire family's down. We're like, great, stay at home. That'd be really helpful for you to do that anyway. Um, by the way, my name is David. If I've not met you, um, I serve on the pastoral staff. I'm so glad that all of you are here because hopefully that does mean that you're healthy. So that's a, that's a very good thing. Um, we are in Luke's gospel, his biography of Jesus. Um, and what we're attempting to do here is to um, take advantage of how Luke tells the story of Jesus um, just real briefly, the way Luke is structured is, is actually pretty simple. There's four major blocks um, in the storyline. Chapters 1 and 2 are about his birth. Chapters 3 through 9 is kind of his early ministry in and around Galilee. And then we've got this major um, block of the story, 10 full chapters, that deal with the road to Jerusalem. And then, of course, um, the last five chapters deal with um, uh, his destiny, what he was actually moving towards all of the events in Jerusalem itself. And so we're spending some time in this road to Jerusalem, and there's a lot of material here to explore, uh, but we're kind of learning as we go, and more importantly, I think, is we're trying to prepare ourselves for, for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday. And so we're kind of moving along the storyline with Jesus, and um, and uh, absorbing the things that he was teaching as he went along. So once you kind of see it in a graphic form, the storyline begins to make a little more sense, I think. I don't know about you, but I like pictures. Pictures just make my life a little bit easier. If you've ever served on one of my teams, you know that I love whiteboards, probably to an unhealthy degree, but <clears throat> I really like them an awful lot. And it's stuff like this that makes it uh, at least come alive for me. Um, I do want to hit the pause button uh, for a second and address something. Uh, last week, uh, we um, uh, covered in part of our teaching this uh, thing called the Transfiguration, um, where something truly remarkable happened. Um, Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up onto a hillside, and uh, something that very strange occurred and that's really hard, even when you're reading the text, to fully grasp but then they saw Jesus talking with Moses and with Elijah. And the comment that I made was that Elijah and Moses uh, had something in common in the fact that uh, they did not die, but rather were taken into heaven. That is not true. Uh, let, me, let me try to <laughs> backtrack just a little bit. Elijah was taken into heaven by a, a chariot of fire. Moses did die, but he had an unusual death. And I need to point this out. He was taken up onto Mount Nebo, and he was uh, shown the promised land, and he died. But it was unusual because God took care of the funeral arrangements, and nobody could find his grave. Isn't that fascinating? Now, my standard practice every time that I do this is to double-check every biblical reference that I make and put on the screen the passage where it's appropriate. And for whatever reason, last week... <clears throat> A little brain cramp happened, and uh, that one slipped through my filter, and so I made this you know, general remark about Moses not dying. Um, the only other Old Testament figure 
to not die per se is, is a man named Enoch. And frankly, I got the two stories mixed up. <laughs> it, it happens, even to me, okay? And, uh, and I'm human, and anyway, so there. There's my, uh, my re retraction. There's my correction. Lesson learned. Hopefully, I can earn your trust back because there's a lot of things to learn in Luke, and so I want to pick up the story in chapter 11. If you happen to have a, a Bible... We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 11 and 12. Or if you have a Bible app, you can always tap it in and find it. Luke chapter 11. And here's where I want to start. Um, in, in this chapter, it begins where Jesus is invited to dinner. Now, please understand, Jesus is moving around small villages. And so prominent people in those villages would invite him to dinner because it was a great honor to host a remarkable teacher. And Jesus certainly qualified for that. A miracle-working rabbi would have been on everyone's guest list if they could get him. So we're going to pick up this story in, uh, uh, sorry, verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, we need to stop here for a second because Pharisees, as a general practice, equated cleanliness with holiness. You, you know the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness? If it didn't originate with the Pharisees, let's just say they practice it with a certain amount of intensity. Okay, This is a very big deal to them. The fact that Jesus comes down and he's, it, it's like you're, when you were growing up and your mama said, did you not wash your hands before dinner? It's kind of like that, only more intense. Because it has a religious tone to it. Because if you were unclean at the table, it means that you weren't just unclean and dirty and you're going to eat your food that way. That There was a spiritual connection here that you might not be all that you're cracked up to be. You understand what I'm saying? There are multiple dimensions that are happening here. And in fact, what's so fascinating about the Pharisees is that there was a, a debate among them. And the debate centered on cups, dishes, in fact. The debate literally was, which do you wash first, the inside of the cup or the outside of the cup? Seriously. And you wonder if these people just had a little too much time on their hands, right? But that was a big deal. If cleanliness and godliness are, are hooked together, then how I clean my cup becomes very, very important. Do you see that? And so they would have this debate. And there were two main schools of camp, and they, they would argue back and forth. Now, they all had very similar beliefs, but the cup was... I don't know if it was divisive or not, but it was certainly a point of debate. And Jesus does something truly remarkable. He picks up on this, this issue, and he makes a spiritual point. He's not making a physical point. He's making a spiritual point. Let's keep reading. See what it says. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish. There's the physical. But inside... You are full of greed and wickedness. Tell me how you really feel, Jesus, right? You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? 
But now as for what is inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. <laughs> I, really, I really like that phrase because he's taken something that that Pharisee would have been intimately familiar with and turned it on its ear and, and, and put a spiritual spin on this to get them to think about what was going on inside of their own hearts rather. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, cleanliness, holiness, all of that, guys, it's not about the cup. It's not about this and the methodology that you go through to make sure it's clean, but how clean is the inside of you personally? Are you seeing that? It's this remarkable, dramatic turn that, uh, that Jesus was known for. And so he, he, he takes this debate and he launches into something that's traditionally called the six woes. And he gives three woes to the Pharisees. He gives three wo woes, easy for me to say, three woes to the experts in the law. And I think I need to put a little context around this. So let me, let me help. First of all, you have the Pharisees. <clears throat> Pharisees were a sect within the Jewish religion. So think of it this way. You've got the Jewish religion up here, what we call Judaism, and underneath that you had different groups of people, Pharisees being one of them. They're kind of like a denomination, okay? If that helps you a little bit, you've kind of got this. Pharisees were very conservative. In fact, in many respects, we would label them as fundamentalists. There were just some non-negotiable things, like how you clean a cup. Okay? So you have this group of people underneath the religion that all uh, identify with a certain group of beliefs. You with me? Okay. Then you have another group called the experts in the law. Um, sometimes it's teachers of the law. I think Matthew uses the word scribe. But instead of being a group of people who are defined by their beliefs, this is an occupation. These are the people who actually taught um, what God's law said. Remember, everything in the Jewish religion centers on the idea of the Torah, the law. It starts with the Ten Commandments and, and gets extrapolated from there. You have some people who are uh, responsible for teaching this, and they're called experts in the law. I remember as a kid, um, uh, the, people used to call them lawyers, which was really confusing to me because the lawyers that I saw on TV were not the same lawyers that I saw in the Bible, right? It was a little, little off. So you have this, these two groups, Pharisees and experts in law. Now, very often, the experts in the law came out of the ranks of the Pharisees. So within the biography that Luke is writing, their agendas often overlap, and so he puts them kind of in the same category. You will often see the, the scribes and Pharisees, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, okay? So understand that not all of them came out of the ranks of the Pharisees, but very often they did, and so there's some overlap in, in the agenda. And Jesus takes both of these groups of people to task. Um, very uh, dramatically, I think, is a, probably a good way of saying it. And he uses this term, uh, woe. And we need to talk a little bit about this, this idea of woe. Because in, in, in most of us, I, I would say we would understand woe as kind of a lament. 
oh, woe is me, right? You know, kind of the movies from the 40s and 50s or whatever. Um, but woe also has an, another use, especially among Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament prophets, when they used the word woe, it was often um, a signal or a warning of God's impending judgment. It's coming. Woe to you. It hasn't, you haven't received it yet, but it's on its way. Woe to you. It's a warning. You're not there yet, but it's coming. And so Jesus kind of appropriates this, and he uh, criticizes both Pharisees and experts in the law. In fact, the harshest words he reserves for the experts in the law, a fact that I personally take note of. Why? Because that's kind of my job. I have a very similar job. Now, I'm not teaching you what you know, the law is per se, but I do recognize that this task of teaching and what Jesus uh, criticizes, that group of people can be applied to, to myself and, and a lot of my colleagues. So what I want to do is I want to just take two of the points that, um, that he makes, just, just two of these verses, um, and kind of pull these apart so that we can see what, what Jesus is ultimately saying here. So let's look back at Luke chapter 11. We're going to go to verse 46. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, notice the dramatic pause, and you, experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Ouch. I mean, he is bringing out the big guns on this one. People have the challenge of life, and now there's the extra burden that comes from the, the church, this list. Do this. Don't do that. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't date girls who do. Make sure that you keep it all in line. And yet you don't do anything to help them achieve that. Notice what he's saying here. It is so destructive to point out what's wrong and what's sinful without providing some type of remedy for, for a way out. That's a destructive thing. And of course what we're seeing here is the dark side of religion. Now, trust me, religion gets a bad rap, and I understand why. But all religion is is a structure. And you have to have some type of structure, and I understand that. The problem is, is when we take the structure and we replace relationship with God with that structure. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we're more interested in the methodology than we are in the ultimate message. And that's really what the criticism is here, I think. And in a very similar fashion, if you jump down to verse 52... He continues, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So it's not enough that you yourself have the problem. Now you're affecting other people too. Now here's the, the, the difficult um, you know, piece here. This idea of the key to knowledge isn't necessarily named, but I think it's safe to say that it, it's at least love. At least there's that. It's not about the external actions. It's not about the cup. It's not about how you wash it. That's not at issue here. 
The, the key to all of it is what's going on inside the heart, and we see this over and over again. This is a message that Jesus uh, preaches consistently, and the teachers, these experts of all people, should know better. They should know better than that, and to Jesus, they miss the entire point of the law. It's about right relationship with God, and that's it, and now you experts are keeping other people from that too. Whoa. I think it's easy for us to lose the spirit of something and just wander around in the letter of it. Do you know anybody like that? Yeah. They appear godly, but they behave in ways that are not godly. And Jesus picks this up just a few verses later in chapter 12. He says to his disciples, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is, what's the word? Hypocrisy. That's when you act one way or say that you're acting in one way and, or say one thing and you, and you do the other. And we, we know people like this. We're probably all a little guilty of it from time to time too. And I think this is an important thing, this idea of the yeast of the Pharisees. You have to be careful because when one person does it, it's very easy for someone else to do it because we're trying to play it safe. So we put up the mask by the way, hypocrisy comes from a Greek word that means to wear a mask. It's a theater term. And so you put up this mask, and, and this is the way it appears, but inside I'm a mess. And I've said this from the very start of Thrive Church. I'm like, Can we just all start with the fact that we're all messed up? Because if we did that, and you give me grace and I give you grace, I think we're all going to be better for it. And then we eliminate the need for, for masks and hypocrisy. Just a thought to think about. Tucked away in the next few verses is a beautiful picture of God and his character and what he wants you to understand, what he wants all of us to understand. And I want to show it to you. It's in verse 6. Think about this with me. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are, are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Now, first of all, you need to understand that this reference to sparrows and the cost may be a reference to inexpensive meat. Yeah, people ate sparrows. There's not much meat on a sparrow. It's not like the chicken you get from Tyson, right? But it also could be um, another reference to an offering. Because in order to be in right relationship with God, the ancient Jewish people had to offer sacrifices. A bull, a goat, or a sheep. But what happens if you don't have those means? If you don't have the wealth? God made a way for even the poor to connect with him. Birds. In fact, what's so fascinating, we read in the birth narrative of Luke, in Matthew, that at one point, Jesus' parents go to offer a sacrifice at the temple on behalf of their newborn son. It's birds. So we know where they were, socioeconomically. And yet God made a way for even them to reconnect to him. And so what would happen is you would sacrifice a bird. And, and God says, or uh, Jesus said that God doesn't forget them. 
doesn't forget even the birds. And then he goes on to say, you are worth more than the sparrows. If God remembers them, if God uses them so that you can connect to him, who is the most important piece? The sparrows and their cost? No, but it's you. You're the thing that's most important. This idea of relationship that we have. It's why, it's why God created the law in the first place. It's not about the cup. It's not about the law, and it's not about the sparrow. Do you see that? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they've got it all wrong. You see, the cleansing ritual that you go through doesn't make us valuable. It's because we're a valuable, God makes us clean. And, and the Pharisees had turned that thing around. We are made in the image of God. Because of our sin, that image is broken, it's marred, it's often covered in grime and muck and things unspeakable. But deeply and passionately, we are still loved by God, every one of us, which is why he sent Jesus to remind us in the first place. Now, I recognize in a group this size that some of you may have experienced um, a church where you know cold religion. And you understand this dark side. There's a list or a standard that no person can live up to, and yet that was the expectation. And if you didn't live up to that impossible standard, you were excluded, you were shunned, or you were shut out. Can I just tell you, I'm so sorry. No, it's not my fault. I know I had nothing to do with it, but on behalf of the teachers of the law, I'm sorry. That's not right. Because that's not what Jesus was about. I've got some family members. They're still refugees from that. We believe here that we don't go to church to become valuable to God. It's because we're valued and loved that we go to church so that we can connect with him. And I just want to tell you before you walk out of here today, I am so glad you came. Mm -hmm.